Welcome to episode 20 of Once Upon a Lifetime. Welcome back to Once Upon a Lifetime. We are on our seventh episode about Andrew Carnegie, and we are about to jump into the homestead battle. I do suggest you go back and listen to episode six on Carnegie, which is overall episode 19 of the podcast. And I say that because we've introduced several of the main characters in the last episode and aren't going to take a whole lot of time to explain the background in this one. Here we are, 92. We've been waiting for that three-year contract to come up for renegotiation. And Frick and Andrew are like, heck yeah, this is it. (laughs) This is our moment. I mean, they are just... They they are squared up and ready now. They are so excited. Mm -hmm. And Homestead, to them, is still kind of a new acquisition. They're just going to trim the fat. They're going to get it going finally. It's sort of been dragging them down in terms of efficiency all this time. It's been this like you know, stone around their neck, like they're dragging this thing around. They cannot wait to get it up and going to full capacity. So they know what they're doing. And they've also done this half a dozen times in the last three years. There've been, they have other plants as well, smaller ones and Duquesne. And there've been strikes almost everywhere at some point. They've handled all of them. They have a plan. They have a method. At the time the contract expires, they lock out the employees. They do not negotiate. After about a month or two, they post the wages, and then they bring in the sheriffs, not the Pinkertons, to protect the scabs. And then they kaboom the union at that plant. So they've been doing this, and it's working. And they've just been waiting to do it at Homestead. They just can't wait to use their tried and true plan. So Andrew is setting out for Scotland because, you know, he can't be bothered to stay around for a big thing like this. Actually, they think it's going to be a small thing. So he's going to Scotland as per the usual. As a kind of a precursor to the negotiations, they decide to consolidate his three steel mills into one firm for business reasons. But one of those business reasons is that being a single entity instead of being three separate businesses will mean they have to agree to run all three mills as union or as non-union. Two of the three are already non-union. So that seems obvious. So they kind of say, we're just going to be running non-union from now on as if this is not a big deal like Mm -hmm. oh we're just gonna go with the majority here well the amalgamated and the knights of labor are both at homestead so the first thing frick does is he gives the amalgamated a new contract that's just untenable there's things in it that they can't possibly agree to partly it's the weight large wage reduction and secondly because of the return back to a december 30th contract expiration date So the Amalgamated rejects it. Frick says, that's the end of the negotiations with the unions. From now on, we only deal with individuals. So he was hoping for that rejection. Yeah. He was thinking, great. He was baiting them. Yes. He knew they could not agree to that. So there's only 750 of the 3,800 workers at Homestead who belong to the union. But 3,000 workers meet and they vote overwhelmingly to strike at this point, even though they're not all part of the union. Frick responds by building this fence that is three miles long and 12 feet high. (laughs) He puts these like towers up, searchlights. He adds these peepholes for rifles 
And then he tops it all with barbed wire. <laughs> Excellent. And he encloses the entire works, you know. The workers named it Fort Frick. So this just makes them see, see red. You know, this is like to union men, this is like you're just you're literally preparing for battle. I right. mean, physical, violent battle here. And there are a few reasons why the plan, the great plan that had worked at all the other steel mills and multiple times, there's a few reasons why it was never going to work at Homestead, not easily. One thing is Homestead, unlike Braddock, Homestead is completely a company town. The town would not have existed without the company. There's no other employer. So the skilled labor also had an ownership share in the mill, and they were very proud of being employed by the most technologically advanced mill in the country. This was a point of pride. So there's also this idea that Carnegie Steel owned the mill, but the mill workers felt that they had ownership, real legitimate ownership. So when they're locked out of the mill, they feel like they're locked out of their own property, which is not true, but well, when technically. You think of Andrew's father those many years before as a weaver being kind of, you know, stopped from doing his job. It's just, it's a interesting thing because he, he too had that personal pride in his work. And also there's, there really is a lot of, I think Andrew, this is one of those points where I think it is a true conflict and he resolved it with that whole Herbert Spencer philosophy of evolution. He resolved yes. it in his mind with, I'm doing the best for the common good by keeping labor costs low. This is actually a good thing for the labor. But it really is psychologically still a major tension for him. You know, it must be. But then he saw how it played out when his father would not evolve and he and his mother were able to. That's right. And he realizes for the greater good, just like for the greater good of his family, we had to do the hard thing. So he thinks for the greater good, these workers must do the hard thing for the good of the whole company and progress and so on. Right, right. So in Homestead, another reason this other plan was not really going to work was they there were two unions, not one, and they worked together. So they were kind of doubly powerful. They also all went to the same churches. You had um, these Eastern Europeans who were all Catholic, and then you had these Irish immigrants who were all Catholic. So they'd all go to the same Catholic church, and they just were very united on every front. All the people on the board of the borough, union employees, the mayor, union employee. There just was a unified front in the homestead. McClucky, who's one of the union leaders, said, we have our homes in this town. We have our churches here, our societies, and our cemeteries. We are bound to homestead by all the ties that men hold dearest and most sacred. So there's this sense of ownership, and that is why a lockout at homestead doesn't go over as easily as a lockout at Braddock. It's not just a job. It's their whole life. Frick had already preemptively contacted the Pinkertons. He already expected the sheriffs to be useless and not actually able to deputize enough men to control. I mean, you know, there's 3,800 workers at this plant. Mm -hmm. How many sheriffs are you going to need to protect the plant and the employees in the scabs, you know? So they shut down the mill on June 29th, and there's a rally where someone claimed that the scabs are already on the way. There's this dead silence and then an eruption of shouting and threats. 
the union officials are like, this is not good because yes. they do not want violence. It's not a good look. Right? No, they do not want violence. The amalgamated has always been moderate. They don't want to become radical. So they appoint a special committee and they start patrolling every street coming into town. They patrol the rail lines. They even have a little boat and they're patrolling the river. <laughs> They have taken down the effigies of frickin' Carnegie, which were hanging in town. Effigies? Yep. Okay. There had already been effigies for several weeks. They took them down and they met with the saloon owners saying, please maybe shut down your saloon, but if not, at least be vigilant and don't let anyone get drunk or riled up because we do not want trouble. So the actual union leaders are trying, but I mean, it's like 12 to 4,000, you know? Frick asks the sheriff to send up deputies, and he does. And they're kind of escorted back out of town by union members. Hmm. They just say, oh, no, we don't think you... It's not really a good idea for you to be here. Why don't you leave? So they leave. This is the moment for the Pinkertons to arrive. And this is why people would hire Pinkertons, is the law would be could be very ineffective. So... Frick brings these Pinkertons up on these barges to the river because unlike the Edgar Thompson plant that had a railroad running right into the middle of it, there was just a river next to Homestead. They didn't have a railroad as well. So they have to bring them up through these barges and they do it at 3 a.m. And they think this will be great. We have 300 Pinkertons on these two different barges. We'll just sneak them inside. We'll sneak them inside and then they'll get set up in their watchtowers Mm -hmm. and everything will be well. Well, miles down the river, a union watchman spots them and sends an alarm into town. By the time the Pinkertons arrive <laughs> they, on July 6th, there are about 2,000 workers present. And they have filled up this half a mile piece of land between the river and the works. And they're shouting and they're screaming. And Hugh O'Donnell, who is the head of the Special Advisory Committee for the Union, confronts Captain Frederick Hind of the Pinkertons, and he just kind of begs him to leave. Like, please, please, mister, this is not a good idea. (laughs) You do not want to come off of that barge. But Captain Hind has a job to do. He's getting paid to do something. And he's not going to back down, so he starts walking down the gangplank. And immediately, one of the workers named Billy throws himself over the gangplank and the captain whacks him with a billy club. And then a shot is fired. And who knows who did it. But after that, it's a gun battle for the next several hours. Oh, gosh. About 5 a.m., the Pinkertons retreat back to the barges and there's kind of silence until about 8 a.m. And then they try to come back out again. There's another big conflagration. In the meantime, about 5,000 spectators have come down from Pittsburgh because they've seen the gunfire. They've heard reports like the word is spreading. You've got newspaper people there. The union workers bring out a cannon, shoot it, (laughs) try to shoot at the barges. It's an old Civil War cannon. (laughs) Oh, dear. They shoot the cannon. It actually kills one of their workers across the river because they don't aim it right they light a flatbed train car on fire and try to float it out to the barges to catch the barges on fire they put all this oil in the river and then try to light the oil on fire it's a full battle four different times during this 12-hour battle the pinkertons try to raise a white flag 
And every time a sharpshooter from the towers that Frick had constructed himself, a sharpshooter from the Union shoots the flag down. Oh, gosh. Finally, the head of the special forces for the Union convinces the mob, basically, to let the Pinkertons surrender. So at 5 p.m., the Pinkertons kind of limp. There's several dead at this point. There's already... There's... um. Shoot, how many were dead total? Nearly a dozen. Nearly a dozen. I think that's three Pinkertons and the rest were townspeople. So the Pinkertons kind of come off the boats. They have to walk up to the works and then through the works. And there is about half a mile gauntlet that they have to walk. And this is where the laborers lose some sympathy because they just beat them bloody. They're tearing off their clothes. They're beating them with clubs with anything is an ugly scene well, at this point it's women and children are joining in yeah along with the it's the and whole they town felt, they felt invaded they felt that they were invaded right. their town right. was invaded and they were protecting their property because of this idea that they owned the mill in some way but even the newspapers who typically were sympathetic to the laborers were kind of like oh this was not good this this was pretty ugly and overkill the governor had refused to send the militia before this because he had no ties to Carnegie and, you know, he wasn't kind of in Carnegie's pocket. So at this point, though, he finally admits, yes, there really is a problem in Homestead. I'm going to have to send the militia. He's one of four governors that year who deployed their National Guard to strike situations. This is not a one-time thing. This is a national battle being waged in business, I guess, between business and labor. Right. But even so, this was a bad one. This was a particularly bad one. So there's 8,000 members of the militia that come down to Homestead and take over the plant and make sure that the scabs are given a fair shake. This was all in July. The workers keep striking until about November, but eventually given and... They have ousted the union from Homestead. There is no union in Homestead after that, which was the goal. But the price was very, very high. One of the prices was that Henry Frick's wife gave birth prematurely to Henry Clay Frick Jr. And the baby was very sick. Frick goes in to work shortly after the Homestead battle. And as he's sitting there with the vice president, a young man bursts through the door and shoots him twice with a pistol at close range. The vice president tackles him to try to save Frick. And then that man pulls out a a dagger and stabs Frick three times. Frick then joins the hustle and actually jumps on top of the guy. And they subdue him and they keep him from killing himself with this mercury tablet he was going to take. Um, It turns out that he was an anarchist who's unrelated has didn't have a job at homestead he you know he just saw an opportunity and thought what he was going to do was going to inspire like a labor or the rise of labor and class struggle anyway he thought he was a martyr turns out he just wounded frick and made everything hard because frick did not die in spite of being shot twice and stabbed three times um as he's being taken to the hospital frick says tell my wife i i've survived And then immediately, almost immediately, also writes Carnegie and says, you don't need to come back. Everything's okay. (laughs) 
nothing to see here. We just had a major, you know, civil unrest and and now I've war and I've now been I'm wounded. shot and my baby's been born, but I'm fine. That's just, you know, I'm okay. I'm right. fine. And then two weeks after that happens, the baby dies. <sighs> so I just, I'm not like a fan of Frick, mainly because of later the stuff that happens later. I don't know, and also this, I think he was preemptive. But, I mean, I've got opinions, but I'll keep them to myself. Yes. But I do, I mean, you cannot deny the personal tragedy and stress and like Mrs. Frick. I want to know about her, like my word. Her poor life was a man with some issues, and you feel like he's haunted in a way, but he's just not going to talk about his um, missing Martha. But he always believed after that what had saved him during this assassination attempt was a brilliant blinding apparition of Martha. Somehow, I don't oh. know how, but he, he claims to have seen this. And I don't know if he wants that to be true or mm-hmm. it's just like another instance of as much as he's like, I'm fine, I'm okay. He still has that longing for his yeah his departed daughter. It's very Victorian. It is. It I mean, really that spiritualism is. was very high at the time, too. That's so true. Along with, you know, anarchy and um, yeah. <laughs> evolution. Capital. It yes. was quite a soup of ideas. It was. Know, Many ideas. Very strongly held. This is mm-hmm. so true. So Carnegie, it's interesting his response to all of this, because as, as we know, the strike continues from July to November. So during this time, when Carnegie's writing to Frick, he sort of sees Frick is in the seat of war. I am fishing in Scotland. I should maybe not be a backseat driver. So he doesn't really criticize Frick to his face. On the other hand, Carnegie is a man who loves good press. And this is the worst press ever. This is terrible. Plus, I think he really does have... A sympathy for the worker. And so what he thinks is that Frick brought scabs in way too soon, that you don't try to replace workers that early. Frick's feeling about it was, look, if we're going to have trouble, let's just have it and be done with it and get over, you know, move on. Mm-hmm. And Carnegie thought, no, you know, you, you have to give them time to realize we're not going to bend. Well, I think Carnegie, it was important to him to still allow the worker his dignity. And yes. Frick just was like, well, what? What does that even mean? Right, right. Yeah. So Carnegie is writing to Frick saying, do what you need to do. You've almost won. Stay strong. My word, you got stabbed. Your child died. Uh, You should take a vacation. Go to Italy. I mean, he's kind of trying to help Frick hold it together. You know, publicly, he's saying almost nothing. He's it's one of the only times in his life he's not flapping his gums at the press about this thing or that thing. He say, he comes out with very short statements. You know, I support the the management of my companies. This is awful. This all happened. He was following it. it very closely. I mean, there was oh, a yeah. reporter who came to his home and saw that he had had laid out of a table, you know, in his library, all of the current press and clippings. And he was underlining and making notes. And then when he was asked about it, the response was invariably something like, no comment. I, I've entrusted everything to Frick. I have nothing. And But you could tell he's following it closely and he's becoming increasingly concerned. And then in a couple of personal letters to very good friends, he says, what a fiasco letting the workers get in between the barges and the works like it was mismanaged he never should have brought in these pinkertons at all and he certainly shouldn't have brought scabs in yet he should have waited i mean there's some personal criticism but it's very private 
And I think he's wrestling with it, too. I'm not sure he even knows what to do. And plus, he's not there. So people who blame him for this are, I don't know, right and wrong, I guess. In some ways, like he is very closely following it and very closely following everything that happens at his company. But that said, he is not very closely. He's not on the ground. Carnegie says, nothing in all my life before or since wounded me so deeply. That's his autobiography. No pangs remain of any wound received in my business career, save that of Homestead. Oh, and then he's got to deal with the fact that in England, he keeps trying to give money away and to offer to different cities to build libraries, and they're all rejecting it. They don't They don't want his gift. Oh, no. Th- well, this is his life's purpose. Yeah. So he's feeling like, what? You won't even take an organ or a library from me? (laughs) Who doesn't want an organ? Right. And he says, I was naturally much grieved at, this is about the Pittsburgh Library, at the opposition expressed to the library, music hall, and art gallery. It was indeed pitiable if the wage earners for whom these were chiefly intended would become permanently prejudiced against them by any shortcoming of the donor, however grievous, for, sadly as he may fail in his efforts to live worthily and do his duty, and no one else, alas, knows as well as himself how far he falls short of his own idea, yet his gifts to Pittsburgh must ever remain stainless and work good continually and never evil." So he is feeling very badly that people would reject his gifts, even if he was responsible for this, which he always claims he he wasn't. Now, from a management standpoint, they were not wrong about driving the union out of Homestead. Once that happened, that was sort of the last bastion of those unions in the steel industry in general. They were driven out of the entire industry because Carnegie was so big And his plants were so lucrative that other plants could not continue competing with him as union plants. So they all drove the unions out, too. So it did sort of change the face of the whole industry. So they weren't wrong about the importance of fighting that fight. I wonder if if he had lived in Pittsburgh, if this would have happened. And I think not, because as he got richer... And he distanced himself more and more from the day-to-day and from the worker. But he still really loved people always. And I think he did have, in his mind, he believed that he respected the dignity of the worker. He thought he did. I wonder if he had actually been in the city if he would have restrained Frick. So Andrew and Louise are sort of harassed by this the whole time they're in Europe that year. It's all over the place. Like... In America, Frick was the one who was really villainized for this, and he was all over the newspapers because they were kind of in the day-to-day. But in Europe, they're enough removed that it doesn't really matter who's in charge. It just matters who, who owns the place. And Carnegie is over there, and he's over there a lot. He's he's kind of meddles in politics, and he gets attacked in the press tremendously over this. And he says things like, homestead, homestead, all we hear is homestead. It's, you know, I just want this to be over. He spends like 20 years coming back from this in terms of his reputation. In fact, it impresses him so much that from 1892 to 1894, the Carnegies would spend about 26 out of the 31 months in Europe. They just don't come home. They don't. It's like we can't really deal with that. 
So he just stays, I mean, he's keeping abreast of what's happening, but he does not want to get tied up in the ugliness. No, he's not a man who likes conflict. No. He waits three years to dedicate the Pittsburgh Library, Music Hall, and Art Museum. And this is one of his biggest gifts. It's early on. This is still in his like making money period. It's not in his giving money away period, but he does give some money away even now. And... The museum he fills with plaster casts of famous works so that the masses could enjoy what had previously been available only to the wealthy traveling in Europe. And he also has this contemporary American art exhibit. He wants to start a museum that will buy the best painting done that year, according to certain judges. One of the first paintings is a Winslow Homer painting. And then he decides, oh, Natural History Museum, like, let's let's start one of those. And he sees a dinosaur skeleton in a well, newspaper. Yes, he sees an illustration of a dinosaur skeleton in the newspaper. And he thinks, must have. Oh, yeah, because it's almost like in the back of the magazines when you're a kid and you'd have, like, send away for a such and such and you get it and it's really disappointing. He sees what looks to be a dinosaur like it's next to a skyscraper looking in the windows. It's like a giant cartoon dinosaur. And he thinks, amazeballs, I want it now. And he is writing and writing and writing. Like, send me this thing. I'm going to buy it. Doesn't matter what it costs. And they are finally, they kind of write back and they're saying, well, it turns out this is an illustration of what the dinosaur, what we think it looked like because they had only found a bit of it. And so the rest was all illustrated. And he's crushed for about five minutes until he commissions some digs to find a dinosaur. Because, you know, if you want a dinosaur, you got to find a dinosaur. He finds the dinosaur. He does. They find it. They call it Diplodocus Carnegie. Right. That's its Latin name. And he's just excited. It's He has a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it's almost like an icon of evolution. Like, you know how Catholics have icons, Yes. Or Eastern Orthodox have icons that they, they'll honor a saint. This is like the icon of the evolutionist, you know, right, to have right. this dinosaur that was so big and amazing and then died. Right. <laughs> and some other, you know, smaller, more adaptable species took over. This is this is important for mm-hmm. him to have in the world and have, you know, it, it promotes his. Edge. It's modern. It's great. And it's big. Which, you know, he he just loves that it's big. So this dinosaur comes to Pittsburgh. They have to enlarge a wing of the building to kind of fit the dinosaur in it. And they have to make the whole building, like, way bigger because, you know, they didn't they didn't plan, you know, a diplodocus. I include that for all the moms of little boys out there who are reading dinosaur books ad nauseum right now because I've been there. And that's why I know what a diplodocus is and that it's not diplodocus. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a Greek dish. What is that? <laughs> Just his pronunciation. Yes. In 1897, they have a baby. Oh, It's 10 years after they are married. Yeah. And it's such a long time. It's not completely clear why it takes so long for them to have a baby. Louise does tell her daughter, Margaret, that it was because Andrew was so afraid of losing her in childbirth. He'd had a good friend who'd lost a wife in childbirth, and he just didn't want to risk it. And maybe after her illness, that got even worse. I'm not sure. She actually had another illness a few years after that first one, where she was kind of delirious. And while she was delirious, she was holding this pillow, rocking it back and forth like a baby. And the doctor said to Andrew, she's dying for a baby. She's dying for it. And so when she got well... 
he acquiesced and along came baby Margaret, named yes. after Mags. Yes, this one had to. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I thought it was sweet. Frick was one of the most vigorous well-wishers. You know, having lost Martha, he just... This was the one time Frick decided to sort of let the guard down and be personal wow. with Andrew and write him really tender things. And this inspired Louise to want to buy a home in Scotland instead of continuing to rent every summer. She wanted to put down roots. Yes, well, now now they have another legacy, not just the fortune, but now they have a daughter and heirs and so on. So they, they really want a place of their own. When they get to... England that year, Louise, you know, has a new baby and is not kind of moving around all the time. So she stays in Clooney while Andrew goes looking for properties. And he kind of lands on this one called, it's either Skybo or Skibo. And I have heard it pronounced both ways by reputable people. So I'm going to go with... You choose. No, I don't want to be wrong. I don't know. It's well, the roll of the dice. Isn't I it? thought it was Skibo when I saw it. I think I think I heard Skibo. Okay, so we're gonna go with Skibo. It's forty thousand acres, three different locks. It's on the north, the coast of the North Sea. It is very run down, though. It was actually abandoned by previous tenants, and so not only has it no decent amenities, but it's just kind of not been well taken care of. So he sets about getting it restored, and they plan on moving into it partially the next summer as they finish all the work. And so life continues for Andrew and Louise and Henry Clay Frick. We will be encountering Frick again, though, in our next episode, and life will not smooth back out in the same way. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Evan Cresta, for mixing and editing this episode. Please join us at our Facebook group or onceuponalifetimepodcast.com. Thank you so much. 